Good morning, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We're thankful that you're with us today. Uh, just a few announcements before we take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship. Uh, first, the session met with Rob and Liz Kenny at our previous session meeting and admitted them as community members of First Perez. So if you see them today, uh, welcome them. And there's an easy way to welcome Liz because she has a baby shower this afternoon at 2. Uh, if you could attend that. Uh, there's notes about ladies' Bible studies. Please take, please, please take note of that. Um, also, our midweek dinner and Bible study continues on Wednesday at 5.45. We start dinner, and you're cordially invited to that. Please also take note of Matt and my new email addresses. We're going to start using those exclusively uh, for church business to kind of control our inboxes and stay more organized. So if you could add that to your contacts, we'd appreciate it. Um, that's all I have by way of announcements. With that, let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God.
Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 124? Hear Psalm 124. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is our help, and it's him who we worship this morning. So uh, would you please pray with me as we prepare to worship? God, you are so good to us. You have brought us here this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to lift high your name above every other name. So would you lead us in worship, we pray, Holy Spirit. Would you guide us? Would you give us uh, clear minds, the ability to listen well? And would you soften our hearts to receive your word again this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn, which is hymn 101, Come Thou Almighty King. Let's sing hymn 101. Amen. You may be seated. We have the wonderful occasion of seeing the baptism of Ella Claire Forster, who is the child of Jackson and Anna Catherine Forster. And I want to briefly uh, say a few words about baptism before we um, see it take place. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus calls us and ordains this sacrament of baptism. And our confession of faith says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the person baptized into the visible church, but also 
to be unto them a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of their ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of their giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Um, I would think most Christians in the world would agree up to this point about what baptism is and what it signifies. But why do we baptize infants? Why do we baptize infants? Um, Many people would ask, why baptize a child that can't express their faith yet? Um, Many people would ask Presbyterians, do you believe that baptism saves? Um, Are the parents making the choice for the child? Does the child not have to grow up and confess their own personal faith? How does all of this work, you might ask, or you may have been grown up in the Presbyterian Church and you know exactly the answers to all these questions, but they are good questions to bring up from time to time. And I want to give you an illustration for this that I heard from another pastor, and you might have heard it before, but I think it's really great. So when you're on Facebook, or maybe when you're in the hospital, and you see pictures or you see newborns, uh, you see them dressed in something a lot of times. You see them dressed in their parents' team colors or their team logos, I think, right? Um, They're dressed in a onesie of a particular college, and here it might be Ole Miss. It might be uh, Mississippi State. But basically, the family has baptized their child into their story. They have brought their newborn into their love of the rebels or the bulldogs. And you never see parents who are passionate about these teams want their child to be fans of any other team, right? Um, And in a sense, they don't give them a choice. From infancy, they clothe their children in school colors. They take them to the games. They tell them the stories of the team, of the great players, of the times that they got to go see the team. They teach them the songs and the cheers. In other words, they raise up their children in these liturgies of their team, of their story. And parents don't say, I'm going to wait until my child gets old enough to decide for themselves whether to root for Ole Miss or Mississippi State. Parents don't do that. But of course, this eventually happens. The child will grow up and choose to embrace the Rebels or the Bulldogs as their team. And their parents, their their parents' love for the team becomes the child's. And they will choose to wear the colors themselves. And now, as this pastor jokes, there's a chance the child will grow up and commit apostasy by rooting for the other team, right? If you are raised in a Mississippi State home and you start to root for Ole Miss, it doesn't go over very well. Um, Maybe you've experienced that in your own family. But typically, that's the exception. Our, Our children love what we love, and so often... Many fans will say things like, I can't remember not being a fan of Mississippi State or Ole Miss. Um, My parents were fans. I grew up that way, and now I, too, love this team. And so it continues on for generation after generation. I think you get the picture of what I'm trying to describe. 
Every parent takes the symbols that flow out of these stories and they place them upon their children. And baptism is the symbol of our gospel. It's the initiation rite of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of, the, of Christianity. It's the story that is precious to us. It's a story that I've brought my own children into, and in, in two weeks we get to have Sylvia up here for her baptism. We train our children in this story. We raise them up within this story. We proclaim this story, and we fully expect that one day our children will come to trust in and accept the same story. And so it will carry on from generation to generation. So I'd like to step down and invite up the family, and I'll invite up Mike, you too. like to read the covenant promises to you all and then ask you the questions. For to you is the promise and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house." Let me ask you some questions now. Do you, Jackson and Anna Catherine, acknowledge your, ch- your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you? Do you claim God's covenant promises in her behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own? Do you? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Do you? Now, a question to the congregation. And if you answer in the affirmative, please raise your hand. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If you do, please raise your hand. Wonderful. Let me read this portion from the French Reformed Liturgy, and I'll have Mike, you can pray for us. Listen to this. This is the promise to your child and to all those who are here. For you, little one, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he entered the darkness of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. She's smiling right now. For you, he uttered the cry, It is finished. For you, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And there he intercedes for you. All this he did for you, little one, though you do not know it yet. But we will continue to tell you this good news until it becomes your own. And so the promise of the gospel is fulfilled. We love him because he first loved us. Mike, would you please pray for us? Bow your heads, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and the grace of calling us to know you. 
We ask, O oh Lord, that Ella Claire grows in wisdom and understanding of your beautiful grace, and from henceforth, may the Holy Spirit continually be her guardian. Dear Father, we ask your special blessings on Jackson and Anna Catherine. Give them wisdom and patience as they seek to raise Ella in the way that leads to life eternal. Through the grace extended to us through your Son, our Savior, we ask this day that you receive Ella Clare as a child of the covenant. Strengthen her to live righteously for your glory as she grows in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. May your spirit live and work in her, and dear Father, may she be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to take her now, and hopefully she keeps smiling. Ella Claire Forster, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we love you. We are so grateful for this sign of your grace to us. Would you raise Ella Claire in the nurture and admonition of your word, lead her by your spirit, and bless her parents as they raise her in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I welcome... Ella Claire Forster, covenant child of Christ Church. You all can clap. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you all.
Please pray with me. God, you've been so good to us. Would you help us to give back to your church from hearts that are eager and joyful, that have been changed by your spirit. God, make us into great givers, whether we can give a lot of money or a little. Help us to be givers of our time, of our energy, of our um, knowledge for you, for your kingdom. Would you grow your kingdom through these tithes and offerings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who would remain standing will continue singing hymn 332, which is Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, hymn 332. Well, I'd invite you now to turn with me in the scriptures to the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to read together the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Before I read it, let me pray for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us today. Thank you that you've not left us without guidance. Thank you that you've given us your word uh, in which you reveal yourself, your way of salvation, and what you require of man. Help us in this passage to hear words of life, to see your gospel, and to be built up in our most holy religion. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, 
let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And this ends the reading of God's word. This is one of the richest short texts in all of the Bible. Uh, It is kind of the climax of what some of the church fathers called the three falls of man in the book of Genesis. Historically, Protestants have talked about the fall of man, capital F, with Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the church fathers often talked about the fall of Adam and Eve as the fall of the individual, as we all became, through Adam's representative headship over all of mankind, we all became sinners from the moment of his sin forward. But immediately after that, that's in Genesis 3, in chapter 4, you have Cain murdering his brother Abel. And the church fathers would say this was a picture of the fall of the family that was beginning. Families were already starting to fall apart. And that climax is in the story of Noah and the sons of God marrying with the daughters of man and God flooding the earth because of the corruption that was all over the earth. And now here in Genesis 10 and 11, we have what the fathers would call the fall of the nations. We see the nations becoming corrupt and puffing themselves up before God. And what we have in this story and going forward is we begin to see God's mission to make it right. God's mission to redeem individuals, families, nations. And what we'll start to see next week is that he's going to do it through a new nation that he himself is going to create through the person of Abraham. And that will take the majority of the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham and his descendants after him. Now, in the story of the Tower of Babel, we, we learn something important about the identity of individuals and nations. Now, identity can be a tricky word. Um, it's used a lot in modern conversations about race and about sexuality. But the reason it's used so much is that we do need identities. We need to know who we are. And the Babel builders, the way it describes this in the language of the Bible, is that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name. They wanted to establish a name. And in modern terms, we would say they were trying to establish an identity. But I've struggled over the years uh, with the concept of identity. And in a conversation with a friend recently, I think I figured out why I've struggled with the concept of identity so much. And that is that identity doesn't have an opposite. For a term to be helpful... 
generally it needs to have an opposite. So if you talk about good, we all know what good is because it has an opposite. And what's the opposite? It's bad. It's evil. If we talk about love, we know that it has an opposite, whether it's sloth or hatred. If we talk about joy, it has an opposite. Sorrow. But what's the opposite of identity? Like non-identity? Well, clearly, even if you don't have a true identity, you, you, I mean, you still exist, so that can't be right. But what I think I found in this passage that got me excited this week, past week studying was I think I see what the opposite of identity is now. And I want to show you that. And if we understand what the opposite of identity is, we might just figure out more of who we actually are and who we're actually meant to be in this world. So three points to get us there. I want to talk about the search for identity, how that search can actually show us what the opposite of identity is, and how we can get a true identity. So number one, the search for identity. So in our text, Genesis 10 records what has become known as the Table of Nations. There's a list of approximately 70 nations that existed on the earth during the time that Genesis is being written. And that Table of Nations becomes very important for the rest of the history of the Bible. And I'll show you that later in the sermon. But in Genesis 10:8 and following, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod... He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So Genesis 10 is setting the stage for chapter 11, which gives us the story of the founding, not just of a tower, but a city called Babel. And that city called Babel is going to become very important in the Old Testament because it's the origins of the kingdom of Babylon. It's the centerpiece of the kingdom of Babylon. We won't see Babylon proper again until 2 Kings. It's that long. And Genesis has already taken the time to set it up so that we can be on the lookout for Babel, for Babylon, later on. So Genesis 11 is the Bible's commentary on the founding of the kingdom of Babylon which is going to be Israel's major opponent once we get past the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And here's what we need to see about this original attempted founding of Babylon. These men who wanted to build a city and a tower, it says they had one language, they settled on a plain, they wanted to build a tower that reached to the heavens, and they wanted to make a name for themselves or establish their identity as a city and as a people. Let me unpack that briefly. So first, it says they had one language. In other words, they had a unified vision, a unified mission, a unified purpose. They understood one another. There was unity there. Also, it says they settled on a plain in the land of Shinar. That's important. Plain could, the word, Hebrew word for plain could also be translated valley, but that's not insignificant because if you picture this story as if these primitive men thought that they could actually build a building tall enough that if they kept building and building and building, they would end up in heaven near the throne of God. It's a wrong picture. If they were going to do that, they would have built it on one of the many tall mountains that surround that plain. Instead, they built it on a low point. This is symbolic. This is not literal. This is not like astronauts going up into space looking for God. This tower is a theological statement. So that means that the tower they wanted to build reaching the heavens isn't just about height. 
It's stating something that we'll get back to. And then lastly, it says these men, in terms of their motives, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to form an identity, establish who they were by means of this city and its towers. And there are different theories about exactly what this tower was. But most of the modern commentaries will agree this was a ziggurat. It was a step tower that was shaped like a pyramid that one could climb and ascend to the top. And at the top of that structure would be an idol or multiple idols. And, you know, we've, we talk so much about idols, spiritually speaking, like your career can become an idol or your family can be an idol. In these days and in all of the Old Testament, you have to remember, idols were physical things that people actually bowed down and worshipped. They conversed with them. They prayed to them. They were real things. When the Bible says that David was a great king because he didn't worship idols, it literally means he didn't allow idols, physical idols, in the land. Well, these, what we found from, from archaeology is that people would build these ziggurats, and they would climb to the top, and they would place these idols at the top, and they would summon a deity or some kind of demonic force down to inhabit that idol. And they would, it was as if they believed they could trap this deity or this being inside the idol like a genie in a bottle. And then they could ma- manipulate it to get them to do whatever they wanted to do. Dagon is a really good example of that when, we get it, if, when you get into the book of Kings. They, this, this god that gets, this idol that gets placed in the same room as the Ark of the Covenant and it keeps falling over and falling over and falling over. So that we have, part of re-enchanting the world, is, which is part of this series, we have to realize this idea of idolatry, of demonic forces, of, of God coming down and exploring this tower, this is all a really serious part of the text. And because of that, the tower of the city was called, the tower and the city was called what? Babel. Well, what does Babel mean? It's an Akkadian word that's one of the kingdoms that was founded by Nimrod. That meant gate of God. So these men were literally trying to build a place where when you entered it, God was present there. It was the gate of God. They wanted to build a name for themselves and say, we are the city that has the tower where God dwells and does our bidding. That's their attempted identity. And you, know, the, you ask, well, how is this relevant? This is a lot of Bible jargon, right? You've never heard of countries that think they have secret access to God above all countries. Have you? They like our country is the gate of God. This is the place that truly God has blessed. One thing I've heard others say is that if you look at a city or you look at a country and you want to know what it worships, look for its biggest buildings. Look for its tallest buildings. So take cities in America. Go to Washington D.C. What are the biggest buildings? Government buildings. You go to New York City. What are the biggest buildings? Financial centers. You go to Nashville, what are the big buildings? Financial centers, music, and sports. It tells us something about we, what we think is important. And as individuals, we can do the same thing. We have little areas of our lives that are our little towers, our little gates of God that we think, because of this about me, I'm special. I have more special, more private access to God. God thinks I'm a precious, unique snowflake, and I'm better than everybody else. Right? We all have these things. In our lives. So that's identity. That's us trying to create identities. What makes us special? What makes us different? What gives us access to the gate of God? But here's number two. How that search for identity can actually show us the opposite of identity, which can help us find a true 
identity. So you see this in the story in Genesis 11 because when these people try to establish a name for themselves, an identity for themselves, watch what God does. And this, this is amazing. He gives them the opposite of what they want. One of the things that's obvious about Genesis 11, if you look at it in Hebrew, it's really, really interesting. It's just full of puns and word plays. In this little short, like, paragraph-length section, there's seven or eight little puns. Uh, so if you like puns, you can learn Hebrew, and you can look at Genesis 11, and you'd have a ball, as I did this past week. Because why are there all these puns and these word plays? Because it's a story about language. And so the author's playing around with language to kind of illustrate that the story's about language. It's really neat. I'll give you a few examples. They don't come out as clearly in the Hebrew, but I'm going to try to show you in English. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, so I don't think I could if I wanted to. But in verse 3, it says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. If you want to translate that literally from Hebrew, it says, Come, let us brick bricks and burn for burning. Come, let us brick bricks and burn for burning. In other words, a lot of bricks and a lot of burning. There's emphasis there that this is a big structure that they're about to build. Another thing they say is, come, let us build this tower lest we be scattered. And what does the story end with? They built the tower so they wouldn't be scattered. God comes down and scatters them. They end up accomplishing the opposite of the purpose that they had in building the tower. Another point is they wanted to ascend to the heavens to bring God down so that they could manipulate him. But when God comes down, they find out he can't be manipulated. And he's in control. And so he scatters them. But the biggest irony in this story is in what God calls the city in the passage. Verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. The city and the tower is called Babel. Remember what that means. Gate of God. But the text says that God called it Babel because there he confused their language. And the, the Hebrew word for confused is Baalel. It's called Babel because it's Baalel. In other words, what you thought was the gate of God is actually a place of confusion. That's the idea. And he wants the Israelites to know this. They have the Torah. When the time of First and Second Kings come around, when Nebuchadnezzar is rising to power, when Babylon is rising to power, he wants them to know that they're going to hear about Babylon, that they're this great and mighty kingdom, the gate of God, so to speak. But in God's eyes, they're nothing but a place of confusion. So these men want to make a name for themselves. But God brought them confusion. So the opposite of a true identity is confusion. When people build their identities on false ideas of God and false ideas of themselves, what they get is confusion. God confounds them. God says, you thought you were making a name for yourself, but here's your real name. Wear a sticker on the, your chest that says, hi, I'm confused. And that's Babylon. But it can also be us. That's what God wants us to know about Babylon throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. When Nebuchadnezzar looks so scary and he's breathing down Israel's necks, he's wearing a sticker that's saying, hi, I'm confused. And the idea of confusion as the opposite of identity, I mean, it just it makes so much sense because if you look at our, at our culture right now, we're so confused. I said Sunday night, I never cease to marvel that we're in a society that's afraid that the sun is going to burn out and the earth is going to freeze 
while at the same time being afraid that the sun is going to get hotter and we're all going to melt. We're in a society that claims to understand sexuality better than our ancestors. But we can't define what a woman is or what a man is. We're in a society of people who claim that they don't believe in God, but they have prayer and meditation apps on their phone. Hi, I'm confused. That's the world we live in. If you build up false identities for yourself, you're always going to be confounded and confused. That goes for individuals. It goes for nations. If you build your life on control, if you think your life is the gate of God and you've got everything perfectly in order and perfectly in control and you can control and manipulate all the people around you, God is going to come down and he's going to confuse you. He's going to bring chaos and turmoil into your life to help you figure out who you actually are. If you build your life on power, if that's the gate of God, God is going to keep bringing you weakness after weakness after weakness until you figure out, I don't know who I am. Hi, I'm confused. Now that leads to the third point. Does this story give us any hope? Our false searches for identity lead to the opposite of identity, which is confusion. So what's our hope that we can find a true identity? That's number three, finding our true identity. This story ultimately, when you read it in the context of the New Testament, is about how Christ can bring hope to the nations and how he can give us a new name, a new identity. And in order for him to do so, he has to come into this world and be lifted up and die to become the true gate of God, the true place where we find access to the Father. He has to experience the ultimate confusion of being the Son of God who is at the same time forsaken by God on the cross. Among his final words on the cross are, Why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? He comes into our confusion and he experiences it in order for him to fix, because if he's going to fix the fall of man, to fix the fall of families, to fix the fall of nations, he's got to come and actually experience a sort of fall, even though he doesn't deserve it. And then he's got to rise again so that he can rise us up as well. And he's going, in this book of Genesis, God is going to call this man named Abram, we're going to start to look at next week, to be the father of a new nation, the people of Israel. And it's through this nation of Israel that God is going to bring this Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is going to come down and save people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Jesus is going to be the true Babel, the true gate of God. He is going to come down, he has come down to give a true name to his people because he puts his name on us. Every time we call ourselves Christians, we remind ourselves that we belong to the Christ. So I want to show you one of the main points about Babel that come up, comes up in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2. Very famous story. On the day of Pentecost, after Christ's resurrection, when the Holy Spirit comes down and the many disciples there begin to speak in foreign tongues, in languages that they don't know. There's a list of nations in Acts 2 that's very similar to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. Just telling us, Genesis 10 and 11, God wants us to see they're related to Acts chapter 2. The point of Acts 2 about the gift of tongues isn't about getting this gift to use in our quiet time so we can have some kind of special relationship with God that other people don't have. 
What Acts 2 is showing us is that Jesus Christ speaks every language. You don't have to be an Israelite. It doesn't matter where you're from. Christ can speak your language, and his people can speak your language. I always illustrate this with a story by, uh, that David Jeremiah tells. David Jeremiah, you know, fairly well-known preacher. He's in another country at a conference, and he walks out on the street. He, do, he doesn't speak the language, but somebody sees him holding his Bible as he's leaving the conference, and the man points at David Jeremiah's Bible and says, Hallelujah. And David Jeremiah doesn't know what language this guy speaks, so he just says back, Hallelujah. And so the man says back, Hallelujah. And so David Jeremiah says back, Hallelujah. And before you know it, David Jeremiah says, we were having church on the street and we couldn't even speak the same language. That's what Christ came to do. To unite a people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself among all the nations. This is how we get our true identity. Not in the language we speak, not in the country we inhabit, not in our careers, not in our marriages, not in our families, but ultimately our ultimate identity. The only identity that will keep us out of confusion is to belong to Jesus Christ and to be His. So what's your true identity? Fred Craddock tells a story. He was a disciple of Christ, minister, who taught preaching at Emory for years. He's passed on now. But he tells a story that goes like this. A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning they were eating breakfast in a little restaurant hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. While waiting for their food, they noticed a distinguished-looking white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting with the guests. The professor leaned over and whispered to his wife, I hope he doesn't come over here. But sure enough, the man came over to their table. Where are you folks from? He asked in a friendly voice. Oklahoma, they answered. Great to have you here in Tennessee, the stranger said. What do you do for a living? I teach at a seminary, he replied. Oh, so you teach preachers how to preach, do you? Well, I've got a really good story for you. And with that, the gentleman pulled up a chair and sat down. The professor groaned and thought to himself, Great, just what I need, another preacher story. The man started. See that mountain over there? He pointed out of the restaurant window. Not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the same question. Hey, boy, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school, in the grocery store, or drugstore, people would ask the same question. Who's your daddy? He would hide at recess and lunch time from other students. He would avoid going into stores because that question hurt him so bad. When he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to his church. He would always go in late and slip out early to avoid hearing the question, Who's your daddy? But one day, the new preacher said the benediction so fast, he got caught and had to walk out with the crowd. Just about the time he got to the back door, the new preacher, not knowing anything about him, put his hand on his shoulder and asked him, Son, who's your daddy? The whole church got deathly quiet. He could feel every eye in the church looking at him. Now everyone would finally know the answer to the question, Who's your daddy? The new preacher, though, sensed the situation around him, and using discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give, said the following to the scared little boy. Wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You are a child of God. With that, 
he patted the boy on his shoulder and said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. With that, the boy smiled for the first time in a long time and walked out the door a changed person. He was never the same again. Whenever anybody asked him, Who's your daddy? He'd just tell them, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table and said, Isn't that a great story? The professor responded that it really was a great story. And as the man turned to leave, he said, You know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably would never have amounted to anything. And he walked away. The seminary professor and his wife were stunned. He called the waitress over and asked, Do you know who that man was who was just sitting at our table? The waitress grinned and said, Of course, everybody here knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. He just needed to hear that he was a child of God. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. You are a child of God. Go and claim your inheritance. Let us pray. Father, it is such a privilege to be able to just spend time exulting over your word and exulting over what Christ has done for us that while we live in a world full of confusion, you offer us a stable identity. We don't have to achieve it. We only have to receive what Christ has done for us because he's adopted us through his spirit into the family of God. Help us to live as those who have a great inheritance. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing our closing hymn, which is hymn number 97. We praise you, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.